This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode for the Financial Freedom Podcast. I've got a really special guest for you today, Brian Pilmore, and he's pioneering a new era of banking strategy. So today's talk is going to be all about the banking sector, financial crises. Um, it's going to be really fascinating. We'll talk about uh, you know digital assets as well. And um, he's the founder and CEO of Viz Banking, and it's a pioneer data-driven banking platform. Um, and I'm really happy to ask Brian about this. So Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah, uh, kind of set the stage, talk about your background, how you got started, and what you do. Yeah, well, I'm leading a startup called Viz Banking today, and like you mentioned, uh, we're a bank intelligence and action system, and we help bank stakeholders, be that bank executives or leaders, or um, stakeholders at banks, people that sell to banks, vendors to banks, to better understand the bank that they're looking at and maybe the competitors in the landscape. So I like to say, uh, I don't think there's anybody that has more information about the banks in the US and the credit unions than we do. Uh -huh. uh, billions of records spanning 30 years. Um, so, so we kind of nerd out on banks. Um, I would say, you know, my background, I started as an engineer, you know, and uh, your audience, I think, could probably appreciate that, getting some deep technical training, and then your career takes you in a different direction, right? Uh -huh. uh, and in the midst of my engineering career, I, I wanted to explore leadership. And I talked to my boss, um, and I was in a great job at the time in a beautiful area in Virginia. And she said, oh, Brian, you definitely could be a leader here. You just hang around for 10, 15, 20 years, and you're it. And I knew that day, while she was well-meaning and she was very kind, uh, that path was not right for me. So I made a change and um, I moved into finance and accounting. I taught myself some accounting skills, took one class at the community college, and then I became an auditor, a financial auditor for three years. In the middle of that, the financial crisis happened. And uh, only when you're working for a really big company can you do this kind of thing. But I ended up starting a bank with uh, two other guys in this massive company called General Electric. We started a bank in the midst of 2008. And from April of 08 to August of 08, we raised a, a $10 billion in the brokered CD market, brokered certificates of deposit. And uh, and then we acquired the second largest uh, equipment finance company at the time from Citigroup. And that formed an 11, along with a billion dollars of capital from General Electric, 
uh, formed a, a pretty large bank that was an industrial loan corporation. It's a specific kind of bank that's in, um, that's they have industrial loan corporations in different states, but the one that has the most of them is uh, Utah. So this happened to be uh, headquartered in Salt Lake City. So I bounced between Connecticut, Salt Lake, and Dallas that summer. Um, and uh, that was my trial by fire learning about banking. I had, other than having a bank account and having a credit card, I knew nothing about banking. Yeah. Yeah, really fascinating story. And I love this. Uh, I love the story that you talked about, you know, your boss is like, yeah, stick around for 60 years and, you know, and then you, you'll you make it. That's, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's quite you know, laughable these days. Um, the, you know, kind of we'll talk about Viz Banking's role in modern banking. And um, can you explain how Viz Banking's bias system is revolutionizing the banking sector and what makes it unique compared to traditional banking analytics tools? Yeah, there's a number of tools on the market. We're kind of the new guys to the to the playing field. Number one, our, our data is all visualized. So I think that makes a big difference, right? Nobody can read, you know, mountains of reports or looking at tabular data, maybe except for, you know, maybe you got some anesthesiologists in your crowd. Those yeah. are the guys that are good at looking at tables. But outside of anesthesiologists, nobody can look at a table of data and understand what's going on. Um, so first of all, we visualize the data. Secondly, we integrate the data. So all these pieces of data are in different silos. Think like people data, uh, legal entity data, financial data, regulatory enforcement data. Well, you got to connect the silos so that you can see, oh, this bank uh, had a regulatory enforcement action from this regulator. Their financial performance before that dipped. And by the way, we can also see that their CEO left and here's the new CEO. So we can see all that stuff in our platform. And so it gives you, so our, our um, the silos are connected. And then we don't believe that data is meant to just be viewed or digested by humans. We think like we're driven to action. So that's like the bank intelligence piece. Great. You got the intelligence. Now what do you do with it? Well, it's to drive action. So we've built sort of a micro application layer on top of all this data. And that micro application layer lets you do things with it. So you could say, hey, show me all the banks that grew loans last last quarter and who were the customers that they added? That's a big step. Then secondly, how about I, I run a bank and I need to find a new chief credit officer? Well, we got a two and a half million person data set of just people that work in banking and financial services in the US. Let's find you a chief credit officer that's near your office in, uh, in um, you know, I don't know, pick uh, the Woodlands, Texas. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's where I'm from, actually. <laughs> oh, even better. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I love that. And, um, you know, quite interesting because I'm actually, uh, these days I'm really kind of a subset of my attention is focused on like fintech and, you know, especially data analytics, AI, blockchain, um, you know, the role of digital assets, whether, again, this is not financial advice, but, you know, the role of that Bitcoin is playing as a digital asset. Um, still very early, but, you know, kind of, um, so kind of talk about this navigating financial crises and um, with your experience in various roles in the banking sector, what strategies do you suggest for banks to navigate through financial crises effectively? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a deep <laughs> one. Okay. So we, for, for your viewers that are unaware, and I bet your viewers are very aware because they're super intelligent people and they care <laughs> about their financials. We are in the midst of a banking crisis. <laughs> it is a quieter crisis than 2008. Why is it quieter? Well, because it's not it's not being led. Eventually, I think we're going to get there, but it's not being led by deterioration in credit. Why? How is it being led? What are the you know three four banks that we've seen that were headline you know Wall Street Journal failures this year? Mm. It was led by uh, illiquidity. That's driven by interest rate policy. So interest rates rise and these banks, because they couldn't deploy their um, their deposits into high quality loans, there just wasn't enough loan demand in our economy over the last four years as the federal government put over five trillion, almost six trillion dollars into the money supply. These banks put it into securities. I know this is a little bit long-winded, a little bit rudimentary, but I want to get this ground, this uh, foundation laid. So those banks, in order to get any yield on those bonds that they put on their balance sheet, they went long. <laughs> and we saw what happened, right? Silicon Valley Bank, um, there in October of, um, of 22, there when they reported earnings for the third quarter, their bond portfolio had an average duration over six years long. So that means in order to unwind, uh, you know, half of that portfolio, that it would have taken six years to just unwind half of the portfolio. And then they had a run, then, then, so that drove them to illiquidity. So all of those assets are tied up in a bond, a treasury bond. Mm -hmm. And in a normal environment with sort of steady rates, you can come in and out of those short-term, hopefully shorter-term bonds. These guys went long. They're in like, you know, five, 10 year, maybe 15 year treasuries. That's a problem. So if they're going to sell them after interest rates have risen, those bond prices are lower, inversely correlated to interest rates. So long, you know, that's a, to make a long story long, that that is what drove the illiquidity for the banks. And yeah. we're in the midst of that. It has not unwound completely. There are more bank failures to come. Um, the government has shored up confidence for now, but that, you know, it's a different kind of crisis than 08. 
Yeah. And so well said, and like, like you said, we could go, we could do a webinar and, um, you know, it's really interesting because, um, 08 was kind of like the beginning, but then like look at from 08 to like 2023 now or 2024, it's like, it's getting more frequent and it's like getting faster. So like three banks, like failed three or four banks failed within a week and they got shut down. And then, you know, like, wait, you know, took a, almost like a year to play out with, you know, first Bear Stearns and then culminating in Lehman. And it's all a problem with fiat currency and central banking and too much debt and just, you know, kind of money printing and kind of just reckless spending on just frivolous things. Um, yeah. You know, we could, I mean, we can talk about all of this and then bailouts for, you know, the rich and, um, you know, unethical greed, fraud. So talk about um, ethics and organizational behavior. What what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> like big topics, Chris. This is great. Uh, yeah, I think ethically, I think it's it's absolutely criminal to add uh, significant money supply. Uh, that's where the problem began. And I think we can see it uh, even leading up uh, before COVID. There was loose monetary policy. And then uh, it was like pouring gasoline on the fire. Um <laughs> It, it, it just exploded. And you can just see it for those uh, econom economics nerds out there. Uh, They're already looking at this, but for those uh, uninitiated, just go and search the Fred M2 money supply and you'll see how much the money supply just, you know, took a rocket ship um, up in, you know, from 2019 to 2020 and so on. Yeah. Uh, organizational behavior. I think that is like you talked about the problem with fiat currency, the problem with uh, money printing and so on. Um, I was talking uh, to a friend yesterday about what is money? You know, when we get back to it, like fundamentally, and I'm not a classically trained uh, macroeconomics guy or anything, but money fundamentally is the, the result or the, the uh, evidence of converting labor, converting uh, useful assets and equipment and so on. What is produced is money, real money, real wealth. But unfortunately, we have governments that want to play like the call. I call it the not so invisible hand, <laughs> right? Like we can see exactly what they're doing somewhat because we have some government reporting um, that is at least directionally correct, probably at least better than the reporting out of China. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, it's criminal to put that kind of money supply in and, you know, gosh, shocker, it causes inflation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Like I said, like, um, and so it's like quite interesting. There's a really good book by Lynn Alden talk, talking about broken money. And I, I think, um, especially, you know, since, um, especially since the advent, advent of, Bitcoin a lot, you know, I've really understood the idea of money better, you know, what it is, it's a medium of exchange, it's a store of value. And, um, you know, kind of how the money system is broken, it's kind of just old, you know, central banking, and how it's, you know, we need more transparency, um, which brings me um, to my next question is, um, you talk about this um, economic influence on the banking sector, and so it's so interesting because, you know, because again, you know, the U.S. rose as the dominant superpower after World War II. And that's, you know, and basically the, um, you know, basically the U.S. petrodollar put everything, everybody's um, making it the world's reserve currency. But now a lot of countries are saying, uh, you know, 
F this, I'm not going to depend on this. There's sanctions and they're trying to get away from it. You know, um, so kind of talk about is the, what the actual real impact of de-dollarization, you know, is the West losing its grip? Talk about that. Yeah, I think it's a little bit overblown. I'm not sure that I would like lend a lot of credence or maybe maybe those people that are making those announcements in, in books or publications are maybe a little ahead of their time and more power to them. Like they're going out on a limb there saying like, hey, this is going to be a de-dollarization. At the end of the day, I, I liked your phrase like that money is a store of wealth. And um, and I like, you know, even to preface that with that, it's a temporary store of wealth in terms of our fiat currencies. Yeah. So um, if, if your wealth, if you're a physician listening to this podcast or anybody else, and if your wealth is primarily stored in fiat currency, mm-hmm. um, first of all, it's an unproductive asset. Secondly, uh, inflation, inflation is eating away at, at it. Uh, third, you're actually taking on counterparty risk due to the fact that that currency is issued by a government. And while it may be, you know, <laughs> the most stable government in the world, uh, no government is uh, is completely uh, risk-free. You know, the so-called risk-free rate ain't exactly risk-free. Yeah. So when I look at the store, like where do I want to store wealth long-term? It'd be better to own a bank than put your money in a bank, mm. right? Uh, it'd be better to own a productive asset, an apartment building, than to, than you know, than to uh, store your money in a fiat currency. Um, it would be better to own a tangible asset than a financial asset, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Uh, a productive tangible asset. Right. So, would I like to own an apartment building or a REIT? Well, yeah. one's a financial intangible security, and the other is is a physical. Uh, building, you might say, well, I never actually own the building. I just own an interest in a legal entity. Well, fair enough, but it's a little closer than it is to a REIT that owns a legal entity that owns a legal entity that owns a building. Um, so I, that's the way I look at it is, is as we're building financial uh, independence, we're, we're trying to get our store, be as efficient as possible in getting our store of wealth into something that's tangible and productive. That's a, not a temporary store of wealth, but actually a long-term store of wealth. Yeah. And it's so well said. And again, it's like this going back to this idea of, you know, what it what is money? And it's basically um, you know, it's a, where you store your wealth. And, you know, in the past, like in the industrial age, how do we create um uh income is that through our labor, right? And then once in once Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard, basically creating fiat currencies, now capital one and it's kind of like the rich they're able to access credit and lines of credit debt and they can acquire these assets you know real estate stocks you know a lot of different things and they have access whereas the poor they they're saving and they're getting income in a in a depreciating asset and they're struggling and struggling you know taxes debt rising and that's why the you know there's any inequality so um you know it's very fascinating like i said um our financial system's broken really needs a you know revamp um one thing uh kind of talk about this idea of community leadership and building the future and kind of and how um biz banking is doing that how you're doing that kind of ended on a positive note and yeah. how people can follow you yeah, I think when I look at community and leadership, um, I think that that's actually part of wealth. 
Like I think one of the largest stores of wealth in our lifetime and beyond our lifetime is actually in relationships. Mm-hmm. So I, when I talk to my own children, I talk about uh, being wealthy, not as just having money or assets, but actually being wealthy in terms of our relationships, our involvement in our community, the impact we're having on the world, the things that we know, intellectual wealth, um, and so on. So there's many different forms of wealth. And uh, what we're doing at VizBanking is actually building intellectual wealth, mm. right? Where we know uh, we have n- deep knowledge on an industry. And uh, I really enjoyed what Bonner and Bonner said in the book, Family Fortunes, to talk about, you know, um, uh, wealth building and and generational wealth. Uh, they They talk about different forms of wealth, and they say that actually... Uh, the financial wealth is actually the uh, the least important to transfer uh, oh. generation to generation because mm. it's it's actually what made you wealthy the means the means of wealth the relationships you have what you know about an industry uh, what you what you've learned and passed on from one generation to another so you yeah. don't have to repeat the same mistakes that's real wealth and uh, so that's what we're building. You know, and and my involvement in my local community with community bankers, and then you know regionally and nationally as a leader in the banking industry, is part of what I'm doing. Not just for myself, but for the industry, for the community, and for my family. You know, I I hope that my children develop deep expertise in in some area that maybe is like mine, but maybe not, and maybe I can help them along that way. Yeah, I love that. You know, fascinating discussion. And how can people check out Viz Banking? Follow you on socials. Check out your yeah, work. LinkedIn's our main social. Um, you know, so we publish there five days a week. Please join us there for conversation about banking, and then our own website and any bank, any stakeholders. You know, if you're an investor in a bank, if you own, if if you're a, a leader in a bank, or if you're just a significant um, customer of a bank, and you're concerned about the the uh, counterparty risk with that bank, um, you know, I'd encourage you to check out our site at vizbanking.com, V-I-S banking.com. Yeah. And for all the listeners out there, let's thank Brian for a fantastic discussion um, on the cutting edge. Be sure to check out all his resources. These will, all the links will be in the show notes. And with that, thanks so much for a fascinating discussion.